Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Costa Roos radio team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Philip Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're wrapping up our discussions of food in fisheries by taking a look at the very real challenges of cooking at sea, and the perhaps less obvious role that food plays in boat-to-boat relationships. We're spending most of our episode with a longtime fisherman and cookbook author. Hi, my name is Tommy Marsh, and I'm a commercial fisherman. Um, I live up in Ketchikan, Alaska, and I own the fishing vessel Savage. I've been in the commercial fishing industry since 1981, and I purchased my boat in Brooklyn, New York in 1990 after the oil spill. Tomi got her start in commercial fishing in the early 1980s, back when she didn't even know how to make a cup of coffee. In those years, this is 1981, there was a lot of college people up there. You know, everybody went up there and, and um, worked on processors or, or went commercial fishing. Uh, my boyfriend was hired and the person that hired him would not hire me because I was a woman and he thought I was, I would be unable to do the work. So I sort of fabricated the fact that I could cook, which I did not know how to cook and that I would do laundry and everything. And he said, well, I hope you're six foot tall and superwoman. And he hired me and I wound up working for him for the next four or five years or four or five summers. So when I got back, when I first got up there, I was on a floating catcher process or floating processor up in Bristol Bay. And like I said, I'd never cooked before. A lady told me how to make coffee on the airplane up there. And I was faced with this giant oil stove and trying to figure out how to even boil water was sort of a challenge. So that was the first thing. But I think then I realized, um, you know, we'd have all these skiffs that would come up from setnet sites and that it was just really important and really appreciated when you fed people. We'd have, you know, uh, these fishermen that had been out in skiffs all day. And, you know, even if my meals were not the best or if it was a a strange looking cookie or sort of a, a half attempted sandwich, just the fact that somebody cared enough to make food uh, was the part that I really uh, took away from my first uh, summer up in Alaska. You know, Hannah, in our last few episodes, we've heard a lot about how food is fuel for the body. But I think it's important to note that food feeds the soul as well and our relationships. Absolutely. And one of my favorite examples of this is the phenomenon of mug up, which I'll pass over to Tomi to explain. So mug up uh, was one of the terms that they had in the old canneries. I think it was 10 o'clock and then mid-afternoon, there'd be this great tray of all these delicious like homemade donuts and pastries, and there'd be coffee. And whether you're a fisherman or the processors, everybody came out in the docks and went to mug up. It was this really kind of this, I don't know, special time because you've got all these people together. You know, you had the foremans and you had the, you know, the cannery, you know, administrators, but everybody came down for coffee, you know, whether you were the slime line or, or you were the skiff guy or whatever. Mug up has been a staple for most of the fisheries I've worked in, and I will personally vouch that it is a favorite time of day. 
But beyond mug up, food is critical to relationships in the fishing industry, something that Tomi knows very well from her many years in the business. She says that much like an army, a boat crew runs on its stomach. Yeah, I think, you know, on, on boats, you know, what can you provide people? You can provide them an extra hour of sleep or you can provide them good food. You know, people really look forward to that, that meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner or the midnight meal or on some boats, you know, it's depending on if you're on a processor with a large crew or maybe you're just on a, a two man boat or whatever. Um, that, that is that's a huge thing to look forward to. And if, you know, to have people feel part of something and feel part of a family. Cause I really feel like it's not the fishing industry. It's a fishing family. It's a fishing community, whether you're on a, you know, a hundred person processor, like I said, or, or a two man boat, uh, you have to be connected with those people. Now, like all families, you're not always going to get along and families will change up. And maybe this one boat doesn't fit your, your personality. But I think for the cook, it's really important to be, you're kind of like glue, you know, the captain's the one that gets you there safely. The engineer keeps everything running, but the cook's kind of the heart and soul of a vessel. So, you know, you know, I would spend a ton of time trying to figure out like what to cook. And it takes a lot of planning, maybe be up in the middle of the night, pulling things out of the freezer, or if you're in town, instead of going and, you know, going shopping or going to the bar, you'd spend a little more time making cookie dough or something and freezing it. Uh, so I think it's, you know, cooks really put a lot of time into uh, keeping the crew well fed, keeping them happy, trying to provide things that everybody likes, and also to uh, um, expose them to, diff to different sorts of meals and different things, whether it's like Thai or, or Chinese or, or other sort of things. So I think um, cooks also are one of those things that can uh, open up the world to maybe some crew members that have never left Alaska or never left Ohio or, or anything. And and maybe make people more tolerant of each other. I really love that line that sleep and food are the best gifts we can give each other. Tommy also really got to the importance of being the cook on a boat and the unique challenges that they deal with. Yes, a chef is so important, but even they face their own challenges. Listen to the story from Tommy about how difficult it was to make pancakes on her first boat. Okay, well, once again, oil stove, it's not something you just turn on and you get a grill or anything. It was like this giant platform and it would literally take, I don't know, 12 hours to heat it up. So I turned it on, assumed that I could make pancakes, which I had never made before. And pancakes, uh, cooking, as you probably well know, is part chemistry, part love, part MacGyvering. And pancakes are one of those um, chemical processes that if you do not let the pancake bubble, it will never cook all the way through. I attempted to flip pancakes over to make sure, see if they were, you know, cook all the way through and they never did. Um, but yeah, the first uh, breakfast was a bunch of gooey accordion shaped uh, semi-pancake things. I have to say making pancakes on a boat that's tossed into and for a doesn't sound like the easiest thing to do, but you know what it reminds me of, Hannah? I've been on a lot of boats where the food is just really quick to make. One time we went fishing together, just the, they had the most amazing cast iron cook stove on that boat. And it really was one of the best breakfasts I had had in a while. It was eggs, it was bacon, uh, but that was definitely the anomaly. But, and it was also only possible because there was a cook on board. Yes, I do remember that meal. And it was like the perfect breakfast to complement the beautiful view out the boat windows in a, an Alaskan salmon fishery. And I think it kind of gets to that point of sometimes what people might want to eat and sometimes what they actually can eat at sea can be really different things. So I'm curious to hear what sorts of meals that Tommy mentioned as being popular. Okay, well, there's popular and then there's realistic, right? Like everybody, I'll never forget when my sister and I were crabbing 
And somebody like, wow, we'd really like some fried chicken. And my sister looked at me, she's like, really? Like, I'm going to like have boiling oil in here, you know, in 20 foot season, make fried chicken. So um, there's always a special meals you make in town. And then there's the meals you make on the boat, depending on weather conditions. Um, also depends on the season, right? If you're in the middle of summer and maybe you're gillnetting or sailing or tendering, that's a whole different sort of um, menu that you're going to produce rather than in the middle of the Bering Sea um, or in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska in December, November, January. Now, as you might imagine, cooking on board any boat can be hard given the constantly moving surfaces and the often very tiny and temperamental appliances that might be available. But winter storms and heavy seas compared to the relative calm of summer can make a big difference in what is realistic or safe to prepare on a boat. But I guess the biggest thing is just your environment, right? It's moving around. The boat's not sitting still. I remember the first time I started cooking, it's like, oh, I got pots on the stove and I need to get in the refrigerator, but I only have one hand. So it's like, if I, if I leave this pot alone and go to open the refrigerator, the pot's going to fall off the stove. And also opening up the refrigerator, unless you have bins and stuff, and it can be very interesting in the winter because you open it up and it's like, well, this is marinade mayonnaise. Then the boat rolls, you close the doors. You open it up again, the mayonnaise has moved over here, or maybe the mayonnaise is flying out at you. So we have a lot of like little um, zip tied or wired in little um, containers or baskets and stuff in the fridge. We also have locks on everything because there is nothing worse than taking a big roll and hearing a big crash and the refrigerator is flown open and you have this giant slippery stew in the galley. Um, it's sort of the same thing with the stove. Everything's like tied down. We have, um, like brackets that go around that you can put the pots and pans in. And if you're going to cook soup, you need a really tall pot, right? Because you're only going to have maybe a quarter of it for soup because everything's going to flail around back and forth. So you can't have like soup two inches from the top where you're going to have soup everywhere. I remember the first time I looked in the stove and I'm like, what are all these weird tin cans doing in here? And they were all squished. And they were the things that you put in between the racks to bin something so that the lasagna doesn't slide back and forth. And I have literally had lasagnas do a 180 in the, in the oven. I mean, the foil's on, but the noodles and everything have totally rolled over a, you know, six hours of cooking or whenever we had time to eat. Wow. I can only imagine how some recipes must look if you're only able to use one hand at a time. Yeah, I think some of those recipes might involve the words crawl toward the oven. For example, here's the recipe for bearing sea cake. Well, this was actually from a friend of mine. And she said, Here's the secret to making sweets. Um, she would sit on the floor with a very deep pan, put the cake mix in, put butter all over the top of it, crawl over the oven, throw it in there, tie it in, and, and it would cook into sort of this strange cookie-like thing. But honestly, I think um, sugar is one of those things that everybody likes. You know, It is that thing that keeps you going when you're tired. And it's also that extra special little treat that um, at the end of the meal, there's something, something sweet to you know, kind of close out a meal. Tommy's comments here are making me think of past episodes where we talked about what fishermen need in their diets. So as a chef, how does Tommy consider the nutritional balance of her foods? I had that same question. While cooking at sea has many limitations, one trick that Tommy has been using is to make sure there's a variety of food on the table to help balance out the nutritional needs of her crew. So when we first started going up to Dutch Harbor and we'd go out and have dinner at another friend's crab boat or something, there was this rule. We had to have like seven things on the table. Didn't matter if it was fruit cocktail, didn't matter if it was a slice of Wonder Bread, there had to be seven things. And I think that was just a way of saying, you need to have protein, 
you need to have, you know, carbohydrates, you need to have fiber. So however that worked, there were seven things. And a lot of times we would combine those seven things like, you know, fried rice, you can combine things into something. So we kind of went away from the seven things on the table rule, because that's a lot of stuff to have sliding around. But yeah, I think for nutrition, you know, you need to have protein, <laughs> you know, you, we did, we do a lot of, um, you know, obviously in the summer, there's a lot of salmon, people are shrimp fishing and crabbing. There's a lot of eating, you know, from the land, eating from the water, you know, terriar, you know, I mean, people now collect seaweed and make bull kelp pickles and there's sea asparagus. So depending on where you are at the moment, um, you kind of eat what's around you. Obviously, it's a lot easier to be creative in the summer where maybe you're anchored up in a cute little bay. You have time to go shrimp fishing or put some pots out. Uh, so every fishery is a little different. Obviously, when you start getting into the winter fisheries, it's a little more industrial. You're just trying to stand up, get some food down, go to bed before you go back out um, onto the deck. But I think, you know, most all cooks, you know, try to provide, you know, protein and, and fiber and, and carbohydrates. Now, Tommy mentioned earlier how on boats, the two gifts that we can give each other are food and sleep. As a chef, her job is to make food. So I'm wondering how she considers that trade-off with sleep. How do you make quick, sleep-friendly meals? So I would spend a lot of time in creating a lot of food products that I put in the freezer. Once again, it depends on the size of your boat, size of your galley or whatever. But if you can find things, and a lot of times you have to go prepackaged, right? It's just a fact of life. You know, granola bars are easy. You can rip it open. It's, it's got something to keep you going. Um, so it all kind of depends on the moment, you know, and all fisheries are pretty seasonal. One minute, it's like, boom, you're going to work 48 hours because the fish are running or the crab are, are here and you've got to go deliver or, or there's a storm coming. You know, there's all these other factors, environmental, um, biological, um, and so and schedules from the plant. So sometimes things get dropped, but I think in the most part, you know, people try to make sure that there's food that people can grab and eat quickly. And even though sugar is sugar and caffeine are very, two very important factors. um, I think there's a lot of studies and people are pretty aware that living on a pure sugar diet or pure caffeine diet is not healthy. And I think as we keep moving, I don't know, towards more of a, sort of a different uh, environment for fisheries, uh, people are a lot more cognizant of trying to put these different things into play. Um, whether it's, you know, you know, some things you can't control, limiting TV time or, or people playing Game Boys or something, you can't really deal with that. But I think, you know, encouraging, you know, healthy practices is what the captain and the owner tried to impress because insurance is a factor and keeping your crew healthy, cognizant, safe, is more and more in the forefront. Um, so there's a lot more placement on accountability and responsibility. And I, I like the fact that it's moving towards that. I'm really intrigued here by what Tommy says about observing a cultural shift within the commercial fishing industry. In making this podcast, we've actually heard that same thing from other fishermen as well. There appears to be a shift toward paying more attention to the human capital of fisheries and prioritizing health and well-being in fishermen's lives. Tommy actually had some ideas of where this shift might be coming from. You know, insurance has become a really big player. Um, and also just having the fishing industry be perceived as a responsible 
and um, uh, I don't know what I should say, responsible industry to be involved in. And it's not just like people are going to go out for the most money at the expense of the safety of the crew. Everyone's working together and you want these long-term relationships, whether it's with your community, your processor, your crew, your insurance company, et cetera. You know, these are things that you can't just dismiss anymore and be like, I'm just going to roll through them, right? And they're hard to replace. Uh, you know, trying to find a good crew nowadays can be, be good and bad. Obviously, there's times you have to push. Otherwise, you shouldn't be in this industry. And there's people that need more sleep and, and different things. And this just is not the right thing for them. Like, I couldn't sit in an office all day and do accounting because I would eat everything in the room because I would be, I couldn't do it, but um, other people can, can, you know, do with less sleep. So I think fishing is something that is, uh, you know, not for all, but for those that enjoy it, it's, it's a really great lifestyle. This valuing of relationships is something that you you and I have seen a lot in our work in the fishing industry. And it's interesting here that those relationships might also be part of what's keeping fishermen safe. Yeah. I think there's this issue of balancing risk and deciding where the line is in the inherent versus the chosen risks of commercial fishing. There's a whole thing with fishing where there's safety versus risk, and it is not going to be a safe job, but you want to try to mitigate the risks. Tomi also touched on something we'd heard in earlier episodes, which is the value of having different types of thinkers and workers in the commercial fishing industry. For example, Tomi has seen many more women entering commercial fishing communities in the last several years and has noticed some of the changes that they've brought with them. There's a lot more women in the fisheries. Um, I think that's um, not changed the tone, but just opened up a different aspect to the whole you know, commercial fishing industry. And there's a lot of women actually in mariculture. And so it doesn't always have to be done by brawn. It can be done by a little you know, thinking ahead, um, planning, you know, some other things that maybe you can't do with sheer power, but of course, that's why God created hydraulics, right? Um, <laughs> levels the playing field. But um, yeah, I, I just, I, I just think that there's just a lot of, uh, you know, sort of different people, different cultures coming into the fisheries. There's like the indigenous communities, there's just different ways of looking at, at fish and how that pertains to family and, and traditions and, and, you know, Uh, working waterfronts and sustainable coastal communities. Tomi shared something here that her sister once said. You know, when we were first fishing up in the Bering Sea, it was interesting um, because everybody wanted to be like one of the guys. It was like, okay, I am not going to be one of the guys, right? I'm five foot two and I, you know, I'm not that strong, but I can think ahead. And so I think it's, you know, it's also good manners, you know, like when I say like, as my sister put it, like, you know, being a lady doesn't mean that you're like, oh my goodness, I have to go do my nails. It means being uh, respectful and having good manners. If somebody wants to offer, you know, their strength or their capabilities, well, by all means, you know, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you catching a line for me. I don't have to be the person that's like, oh my goodness, I can do it all myself. Um, so I don't know where I'm going with that, but it, it is one of those things where I think being respectful to others, like maybe somebody, maybe that's all somebody can offer you is the fact that they're strong enough to grab that line where I will bring them cookies to say, Hey, thank you very much. Um, so I guess it's this reciprocity in skills. I love this phrase, a reciprocity of skills. It actually makes me think of the idea of the professional fishing athlete. Again, how many athletes are successful because they play on a team. So I guess 
it's helpful to think of commercial fishing crews like this, a team in need of many skill sets and many different types of players. Before we wrap up, I want to share one more facet of Tomi's work in fisheries. Together with her sister, Kayo Marsh, and their friend, Laura Cooper, Tomi has co-authored several cookbooks featuring recipes and stories from Alaska's commercial fisheries. I asked her to share a little bit about how their books came to be. We all got together, mostly because we wanted to share stories, share recipes. I love to cook. My sister loves to cook. Laura loves to cook. We all love to eat. And I think it was just trying to share how special it was that, you know, food was this glue and there was these great relationships. And I think also, you know, a little bit as I see a lot of new young people coming into the industry, which I'm really proud of and, you know, would love to help mentor. It's like, you know, don't lose track of these relationships. You know, you're... You're only as good as, as, you know, your word, right? It's all very much um, based on trust and respect. And it takes time. You know, people think, oh, I should get this right away. It's like, no, you know, it takes time to gain respect. It takes time to gain trust. And you don't have to hurry it along. It'll happen. You just have to, you know, stand by your word and and do the right thing. The cookbook was just really fun because we just got to highlight um, our friends and recipes and share these experiences of, Um, great community. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Tomi Marsh, a longtime fisherman in Southeast Alaska. You can find links to her cookbooks in the show notes for this episode. And join us again next time as we start to talk about sleep or lack thereof with a Dungeness crab fisherman. And we also hear from a sleep expert about how rest impacts the brain and brain health. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. To connect with us, visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod. Though we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees, and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Say sailing.